Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora everyone and welcome along to the show. I'm really glad you could join me as we get the chance to speak with Lord Thomas of Coombe Geth. And this is a fascinating insight into what it's like to be a judge. He was the Lord Chief Justice of England and Wales between 2013 and 2017. As many of you know, I practice as a lawyer, so for me it was a real privilege to sit down with him and talk about a wide range of subjects, including the future of the judiciary and legal education in law schools. As well as that, we talk a lot about his being a peer in the House of Lords and what that's like. I know you can enjoy this conversation. If you do, then you might want to check out the more than 130 other episodes in the back catalog and consider telling a friend about the show. And a very big thank you to the Law Foundation who made Lord Thomas's trip to New Zealand possible, as well as Canterbury University Law School for arranging this interview, in particular Stephen Todd, Ursula Cheer, Elizabeth Toomey, and Julie Scott. It was really fun, actually, for me to go back to Canterbury Law School where I studied to do this interview. Now let's dive into this conversation with Lord Thomas. All right, so it's a real pleasure to welcome Lord Thomas of Coombe Geth to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure to do so. So on this podcast, what we do is we talk about people and their journeys, and then we talk about what they're doing today. And in your case, I'm really fascinated at your career, because as you know, I'm a lawyer as well. Um, And so I'd love to find out about some of the things that you've been involved in. Before we talk about that and some of the topics that you're here in New Zealand to chat about, I'd love to find out more about your own background and your history. So I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about where you're from. I grew up in what was at the time a mining village in South Wales. I was educated most of my time in England and went to law school. I at the time wanted to read economics, but I was persuaded that law was the better subject and spent three years doing that. I then went to Chicago, where in a sense I got my own back because it was the era where Chicago was dominant in the theory of law and economics. I spent a year there, and then I came back to the UK, and uh, I wasn't quite sure which field I was wanted to practice in. Mm-hmm. And so I was a judge's marshal um, for a short, a short period, and during that process, someone introduced me to a commercial lawyer, so I went and would have become his pupil had he not taken silk. Mm and became a commercial lawyer and was a commercial lawyer for about 25 years. Hmm. And when you were growing up in the mining town, um, did you have examples of people who were lawyers or was it completely a different world? No, my father was a lawyer, Mm -hmm. but he was the only one. Ah. Um, And so there was a lawyer in the neighboring towns, but but he was the only one in that town. Mm -hmm. So uh, although I grew up in a household where very much... uh, uh, law was discussed, uh, one of the ironies was that when I was asked at an event in school what the word PM stood for, instead of answering afternoon, I said post-mortem, because he <laughs> happened to be a coroner uh, as well. And so I grew up in that, in that atmosphere, but, but in an atmosphere where there was an industry in severe decline, mm. and things have economically probably gone downhill since then Mm. like uh, in most of the UK there's been a significant decline in the sort of 
post what we now call a post-industrial area. Mm. And and that the memories of your childhood then was it a a village environment like where you knew everybody or was it a bigger town no area, it, was, it was a collection of villages grouped together as a town so it was very much a village environment where right. you knew a whole lot of people mm. and what what were some of the things I, I, in my mind that part of the world is just this beautiful outdoors mountains and things like that is that an accurate description of the place you were from it would have been accurate in the early 19th century then inaccurate as industry was developed, and it went through the gamut of industrial development right. uh, of first iron, and then when coal was discovered, coal. And then as coal, as the industries declined, it's now returned to being essentially as it was, um, because most of the industrial infrastructure has been dismantled or put away. So it's mm. gone back to being green again. But the South Wales coal field is a very small basin and so on one side of it, you have the, the coast and about a 20-mile coal belt, maybe sometimes less, sometimes more. And then you have, you know, large mountains. And so mm. uh, it, it's, it, you have the, you've always had the outdoors surrounding you, even though you have this narrow industrial belt. Mm. Yeah, it's somewhere that I've visited, but only briefly. And oh. I'd love to go back at some point. My wife had studied at Swansea University. Uh-huh. So we were driving around the area and seeing, and it was, my first impression was it was a beautiful place. Yes, well, where, where I came from, Cumgear, there's about 15 miles north of Swansea. Okay. And it sits on the boundaries of a national park. Uh, and then you have about a 12-mile industrial belt, and then you have the wonderful coast of the Gower Peninsula. Mm. So growing up in that environment, was it a place that you thought you would go get your education and come back? Or did you have a plan to leave and and settle in another place like London? Or uh, I don't think I've ever had a sort of distinct plan. Mm. Uh, but it just transpired that in the law I wanted to do eventually, because I liked it, which was commercial law. Mm-hmm. In the UK, there was no option by the early 1970s of doing it anywhere other than London. Mm, right. And what was it like for you living in America at that time, having come from England, presumably quite a young man? In- well, I was only there for a year, but I, I was told by a very wise person who actually came from a, a neighboring village mm-hmm that I would find, although I spoke uh, in the same language as they did in the States, I would find it much more foreign than France. Mm. And I think that's to an extent true. But the oddity of being there at the time it was the era of, of student rebellion. Uh, you'd seen some of it in Europe. Um, and it was fairly pronounced because I was in Chicago uh, during the period where there was the sort of revolt against the Vietnam War. Right. And so um, it was an interesting time to be there. Uh, one of the things I will never forget is going down to the federal courthouse to see the trial of um, some of the people who'd been involved in the Chicago riots. Mm. And the judge had completely lost control. He had one of the black defendants bound and gagged sitting in court Mm. and his relationship with the defense team resulted at the end of the day in him sending them to prison for contempt Mm. it was a total failure of a system to adapt and work out how you dealt 
with change. Mm. And it was that was quite thought-provoking. And But on the other hand, what was also thought-provoking was the development of the being taught by fairly new thinking economists about how you altered economic policy away from Keynesian economic policy mm. towards the monetary school of economics, which has sort of dominated one's uh, life since then. Mm. So it was, it, was a, it was very interesting. It was a big change to my life. Mm. Yeah, it sounds like it would have expanded your world quite in quite a quite a ways. <laughs> yes. Well, my teacher at, uh, at Cambridge in saying, well, he thought Chicago would be the best place to go because it would give me the bigger shock, <laughs> and he was probably right. Yeah. <laughs> so you come back from that experience, um, and yeah, did you did you have a sense of where your career would take you at that point, or was it the meeting? No, it was, I think, when you were, when if I was going to go to the bar, I'm not quite sure why, mm. uh, rather than becoming a solicitor. I'm, my father being a solicitor, I think, was keen that I shouldn't become another solicitor. Right. And I think, like most young people, you have a, and maybe some youngsters these days have a much clearer idea what they want to do. Mm. But I found what I did interesting and then pursue that career. Mm. And then being a commercial lawyer, in doing advocacy, your work is very much subject to the what's available in terms of the market. Mm. So I started off being a shipping lawyer mm. because in the period really down to the mid to late 1970s, shipping law dominated mm. the work of the commercial court in London and also the development of contract law. And then it moved slowly to huge amounts of it, of partly soybean-related work because President Carter imposed a soybean embargo which threw the markets into turmoil. And then the uh, insurance market sort of had a big shock because of problems such as asbestosis and a a runaway of costs in America. Mm. And so that work came to dominate. And then later it moved to banking. So you saw... Your life, your work you did was to an extent dominated by what the, what the markets did rather than your own free choice mm. if you wanted to stay and do commercial law. Right. Well, that's part of the reason that I'm enjoying this interview because, you know, I, I told you that I practiced in London later yeah. <laughs> and, and probably the markets had shifted again by that time. That was sort of 2004 to 2007 type of time. And it's interesting how the markets do change and and yep. as a lawyer, I guess you have to be adaptable and ready for... Yep. Well, I mean, when, when reinsurance litigation came back or market-related litigation of disputes between insurers mm-hmm. came back, there hadn't really been any cases since the 1920s. Right. There was a gap of some 60 years. Hmm. Why, no one is quite sure. Uh, partly, I think, the sums of money may have been lower, partly because it was a club, therefore they sorted things out privately. Um uh, but but markets, certainly in commercial work, dominate mm. the, the the kind of work that's on offer. Mm. So just talk us through a little bit of your career and how it progressed and what you got involved in in the next few years. Well, um, I got in, I, having been a shipping lawyer, getting involved in uh, the sort of fallout of the closures of the Suez Canal was one thing, and mm. another was the... Uh, oil price change and the the fact you didn't need as many very large tankers. And so I did a lot of shipbuilding disputes as people repudiated their contracts for buying large tankers. And Mm. then in the insurance market, I was very heavily involved in the 
very large number of disputes that occurred in the insurance market, in particular at Lloyd's. Mm. Um, and then as that work was, um, I did that probably right through after taking Silk into the late 1980s. Mm. And then I was, uh, the government asked me, under a system which still exists but isn't really used, mm -hmm. to be an inspector into uh, the failure of a company flotation. And the case that I got landed with was the flotation of uh, Mirror Group newspapers by Mr. Robert Maxwell. Hmm. And so uh, the next couple of years really went, looking at how Mr. Maxwell built up his uh, business enterprises, what he'd done with the money, and how he had been helped or hindered by those in the legal profession, in the banking profession, in the journalist profession. And so I had a, com and that was again an illustration of, you know, what I would always say to people: Well, you know, something happens. You don't necessarily have control over it. Mm -hmm. um, you decide to do it, and then it takes you off in another direction. Yeah, and you become a specialist in a new area, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's really great. And that was that's really where I first sort of had my real experience of dealing with, you know, what happens on a flotation, mm. and. Uh, how you structure companies, because there were two quite interesting flotations. One was of Mirror, where everyone realized they had to try and control Mr. Maxwell. And then after the, uh, the scheme there failed, everyone said, oh, we've got a wonderful scheme. Just look at Hollinger. This will control Mr. Conrad Black. And again, uh, it showed how difficult it is to control through a corporate structure. Uh, a, a fairly buccaneering adventurer. Mm. It's not easy. Yeah. So um, just talking through um, your work at that point, I, I read a little bio about your background and things. And one of the things that struck me is that you you had two children as well, right? Yep. What was it like? Because um, presumably this is quite a busy time in your life. Yeah. But also with young children. <laughs> um, well, I think my... The one thing that certainly my wife will remember, and I very vividly remember, we were having probably about 15 people to lunch one day, mm -hmm. and quite a lot of children. And the particular work I was doing at the time, uh, um, a crisis emerged, mm. and they said, you must come now at lunchtime on Sunday. And so I left her, came back probably about one o'clock or two o'clock in the morning with this whole group of children and one or two other parents. And mm -hmm. she just sort of, I think that's sometimes something that happens. Mm. Um, but it was, that, that can happen. You also have a work-life balance you have to try and create. And as an individual practitioner, it's probably more difficult mm. um, than if you're in a corporate firm. Mm. But... Uh, probably down to the mid-1980s, maybe beyond it, um, we didn't have the long hours culture that, that lawyers have today. Mm. In the city of London in the early 1980s, the place was dead by about seven at night, as opposed to what it is now, full of law firms mm. operating all through the night mm. uh, or banks operating through the night. So it was an easier environment than I think people have today. Mm. And... The second thing is you didn't have instantaneous communications. Mm -hmm. Sort of, I lived through the era of the fax. Oh, sorry, of the telex machine. Mm -hmm. Or sorry, the first was the telegram. We still had telegrams. Then you had the telex machine. Then you had the fax machine. But although those were in a sense instantaneous, they weren't the pressure 
that you get from the internet. So you didn't have those pressures that you have today. Mm. It's an amazing thing, isn't it, when you look at human history and then take the last 40 years, like how how much change there's been. I remember when I was practicing law and the, the partner came in and said, look, it, this is called a BlackBerry. And all of a sudden, he could be emailing wherever he was, you know, 24-7 and potentially asking for assistance 24-7 mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. But the good thing about the telex machine, which was also instantaneous, it was quite a big piece of equipment. Right. And so you couldn't, you know, and you, the other thing that I think my, one of my senior counsel in, 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 in my chambers when I was a youngster used to go off to the south of France for two months every summer. Right. Partly to relax, but partly to do some writing he was interested in. Mm. And the only way you could contact him was to set in, because he didn't have a phone in his house, was to send a, a telegram to the local hostelry saying, please give it to him when he comes in. And so you had to wait for him to come in to have right. a drink or a meal. <laughs> and then you could be in contact. And it was, a, it was a style of life, I think, that you know has now gone completely. Mm, yeah. So what happened next in your career after that? Um, after well, that I became, work? I became. we have a system in the UK of mm. sort of part-time judges. Mm-hmm. And I became one of those doing crime, which was not really an area uh, that I had done much of, mm. save in the sense of serious corporate crime, such as, you know, ship owners who might send their ships to the bottom of the sea or mm. people who'd steal a lot of money. And so I became a, a sort of part-time judge doing crime. And then I was appointed to the High Court in 1996. And to an extent, I carried on doing some commercial work mm-hmm. and quite a lot of it. But I also, as a High Court judge then, you had to try crime. So I had to sort of learn this mm-hmm. new era. And then in my two years after I'd become a judge, I... Uh, we have a series of what are called presiding judges who are judges who have responsibility for the very, for the uh, six circuits into which the UK, England and Wales is divided. Mm. And so you have to go and look after an area and the judiciary within that area. And I went back to do it in Wales, which was really what took me back to Wales. Oh. Um, and so it was very nice to come back. Right. Uh, unfortunately, by then, both my parents had died, um, uh, but my sort of family, and so I reconnected with Wales. Hmm. But in a way, it was a great advantage because I had, I could see it from an outside perspective. And it was, it was an interesting time to come back in for, I think, two principal reasons. One, technology was starting to stir. And secondly, um, we began the experiment with devolution. Hmm. And uh, so coming back to Wales, it had its own devolved government. And although it had no direct responsibility for justice, one had to deal with a government. Hmm. And that was, that was quite interesting. And um, the reforms that were taking place to try and make the justice system more efficient um, were uh, um, at the fore. Hmm. And I think I quite enjoyed that. And then I came back from doing that and spent a year running the commercial court. And then I was uh, appointed by Lord Irvin literally three or four weeks before he was, um, I think, dismissed is the right word by the Prime Minister as Lord Chancellor. 
uh, as the senior presiding judge, which is the judge who looks after all the presiding judges. And so I got then, by it happened to be the time, pure accident, that uh, Mr. Blair decided to reform the office of Lord Chancellor. Hmm. And so I got very heavily involved the next two to three years in the constitutional reform. Hmm. And so, um, again, it's an example of you just happen to be somewhere where something happens. It, yeah. it could have been, there was no pre-planning. It just, uh, I remember the permanent secretary telling me that he would uh, be sorry that I, he, he and I would only work together for a very short time. But I, he could assure me that the Lord Chancellor would go on for years. And, of course, that didn't happen. Uh, the Lord Chancellor was there for a week or two, and the Permanent Secretary much longer. Hmm. Uh, and uh, I think you just, it's something that happens, hmm. and um, you just sort of carry on and do the best you can in that particular area. Hmm. And did you enjoy that, I guess, the, the changing role from having been involved in being a commercial lawyer, being a judge, and then it sounds like getting a bit more involved in the politics yep. as well? Yes, um, it was quite interesting. Um, <clears throat> you brought back some of your negotiating skills you'd learnt as a as a as a as a, as a commercial lawyer, mm -hmm. um, and negotiating skills where you're dealing with a constitutional change are very important. Mm. It was also interesting uh, observing and then subsequently do something about it the huge divergence that was occurring between lawyers and politicians um, traditionally in the uk an awful lot of lawyers went into politics and that there were you know many cabinets used to be made up entirely of or substantially of lawyers who'd had a distinguished practice and that had started to tail away and <coughs> And so sort of trying to understand politics, never having been doing any of it, and then trying to make politicians understand lawyers a bit better was quite an interesting sort of feature. Mm. And getting used to the way in which Parliament worked. And it was very interesting. Mm. So how did you view your role? It sounds like quite an interesting one. I'm almost wondering if it was kind of like being a translator between the legal profession and the politicians or I think it was trying to make certain that in a period of very real change you carried through as best you could the values of the system and essentially um, that the judges should maintain their independence yet have proper resources and be able to modernize things because mm simultaneously with the constitutional reform we ran into terrible trouble with trying to digitalize the courts ah. uh, the money failed and so from 2000 roughly 2002 until we started up again in 2014 very little happened hmm. and um it was uh, a period where quite a lot of constitutional work was happening there then came the, the very serious financial crisis, mm. which meant government funding on things collapsed completely. And trying to protect the courts and protect the judiciary in this time, a very real change. Uh, and then when things get better, hoping you can start again and rebuild the courts and 
modernize them in a way you think ought to be done. Yeah, that's great. What I'm hearing is you kind of had bursts of periods involved in very specialized different things. I think the big, there are two big changes. First of all, by the nature of the job I had, it, I had to move from being a commercial lawyer essentially to being a criminal and constitutional lawyer, mm-hmm. and particularly on crime. Um, and so <clears throat> I changed doing that. But I, be, at the same time, became quite, uh, again, because I was asked to do this, it fell naturally within my role to become interested in what was happening in Europe because as a result of the terrorist problems in uh, September the 11th and thereafter, Mm. um, there was a desire to try and make extradition work better across Europe. And so we became much more interested in the way in which the continental legal systems and ours could be made to work more closely together. And also one began to see the massive expansion of the centre of the European Union and so I became involved in sort of dealings with the European uh, Union uh, through uh, a judicial governance network that had been established in 2004, and then subsequently with a, a body that was interested in, in developing um, European law on a sort of slightly more systematic basis. So I became involved. In, those are the two big changes. One, I became much more of a of a public law and sense of crime and constitutional law. And secondly, I became much more interested in Europe. And again, these were just sort of, it's not, there was no planning at (laughs) all. Um, It was just happening to be somewhere where someone wanted you to do something. Mm. And so it it was quite interesting because it provided me with a, a sort of whole different area in which I became interested. Yeah. And the role of a judge is it changed in your mind from the, the time that you were first approached about uh, about taking on that position versus much later on? Like, how has that shifted for you? Um, I think the procedural changes that have occurred have made a judge's work harder. Much more is done in writing. Uh, I remember in one case, one of the last cases I did at the bar, uh, a very senior judge who I was doing it before during the course of my reply said well um, could you just take me again to what was the leading case and I said well which bits he said no I want you to read me the entire judgment (laughs) so it took me an hour and a half and what was he doing he was writing his judgment (laughs) at the time I was reading it to him I have absolutely no doubt about that And that sort of thing used to happen, that you had as a judge an awful lot of time in court to do things. Uh, That now has um, gone. Hmm. I think judges work much harder. That's one change. And that's partly as a result of um, moving to a different procedure. Hmm. Secondly, as a result of much greater use of IT. Mm -hmm. And I think also the judges position in society has changed you know whereas everyone uh, society has changed used to be fairly deferential uh, deference has gone and therefore to maintain your trust the trust that people have in you and the authority of a judge you have to be more adept at the skills of the modern age hmm. and that i think those are the two main changes when i was judge's marshal um, when you were with a High Court judge out of London, 
uh, the judge would stay in a lodging. He would then dress in his court dress with wig and red cowan and everything and be driven in a chauffeur-driven car to the court. And there'd be a policeman at every junction who'd stop the traffic. Hmm. Um, that is not... Uh, that all stopped in the course of the 1980s. And, you know, a judge now has to assert his authority and hold their position uh, by means that are not the sort of deus ex machina type uh, of, you know, here is someone who has all this sort of position and privilege to actually having to work to maintain it. So it's mm. a, it's been a very, very different change, mm. but, but self-evidently one for the better. Mm. I guess that's inevitably what happens as well with technology and um, the, what we were talking about before, the fast-paced nature of things. People, mm -hmm. want, people want an answer yesterday, don't they? Yep. Yeah. So what happened next for you after being involved in that sort of political side of things? Um, well, I, just, I did a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. um, and then I became, we have, we've continued in the UK and we still do in, the, in England and Wales to have a Queen's Bench Division, a Chancery Division, a Family Division. Mm. And I became the president of the Queen's Bench Division. I did that for two years and then became the Lord Chief after in 2013. Mm. And I think the main thing, uh, there were quite a lot of difficult... I take the view that if you're a, if you're a, a, a judge who, who is occupies the head of a division rail or a Chief Justice's rail, your principal function is to deal with and decide difficult cases... But you also have a huge responsibility to try and improve the conditions of the judiciary mm. and also make the system work better. And what came full circle really was that by 2013, I think we'd persuaded the government that unless they made a substantial investment in the courts, mm. the system would collapse. And we therefore... Um, during the course when I was Chief Justice, we managed to get the government to agree to invest about a billion pounds into modernising the courts, and in particular to putting in an IT system uh, that was state-of-the-art. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, that was quite a battle, A, getting the money, and B, um, mm. trying to work out how you did it best. And I think it's, it, although it, you know, it goes up and down, it, it's a, it's... To my mind, one of the great achievements of the period was that we've managed in the Crown Courts, the more serious criminal courts, mm. essentially to eliminate uh, the, the need for the judges to have any paper and for all the case files to be electronic. Mm. And no judge, I think, would now go back to paper files. Mm. And when you go into a criminal court, you see a, a listing office or an off-call office which has no files in it. Unfortunately, um, it's taking longer to deal with the civil courts, mm. but it's coming. Mm. And I think that being able to use modern technology does help, I think, a lot uh, in making a system work better, trying to get cases on more quickly, to be able to decide them justly. Mm. Um, but it's, it does require quite an investment of time from judges mm. As, uh, uh, if, if a modernization program is not judge-led and the judges play a pretty real part in it it generally doesn't work right yeah 
And in that role, were you involved across borders as well, quite often with different judges associations around the, around the world? Or? Yes, yeah. um, in Europe in particular. Mm-hmm. But the one thing you've got to do if you're modernizing a system is actually to try and see who's been there before right. and what mistakes have they made and how do you avoid them or <laughs> what good things have they've done. Yes. And so we looked to other countries to see what they've done. Mm. And we looked at what we'd done wrong in the past or what we'd done right in the past and how you could build it. So, yes, and I've paid a, a, quite a, a role in it. Mm. And the other area where I think, which is interesting at the moment, is that a large part, in, certainly in, in the kind of law I grew up in, there's been an enormous growth in private dispute resolution, mm. growth in arbitration and the like. And uh, I think... Um, with regard to the enforceability of arbitration awards, it's so much easier than court judgments. And court procedures haven't necessarily kept in pace with what's been done in the arbitration sector. Mm. And so working together with the commercial courts of most common law and some non-common law countries, we've tried to make the court system more accessible and more useful. Mm. And in that process of that, uh, trying to learn a bit more about uh, a, for example, technology, but b, one of the areas that appears to be in growth across the world is litigation funding, mm-hmm. where actually it's quite useful to know what are the problems of litigation funding in New York, what are the problems of it in Australia, what are the problems in the UK, uh, and see how you deal with this new phenomenon because litigation funding is what, 10 years old at most, Mm. but growing massively. Mm. And so there is quite a lot of international cooperation, quite apart from the support you sometimes have to give other judiciaries when they run into difficulties. Mm. So we're here in New Zealand as we record this, and you're doing a series of lectures across the country, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, What's the main topic or focus for those um, talks that you're giving? It's really coming back to, I think, the way in which the law has to cope with this massively fast revolution. Mm. Uh, I think, although looking back historically, the law's always been pretty good at gradually coping with change. The pace of change is vastly greater. You have to deal with new uh, instruments that come on, Mm. financial instruments or social media. All of this happens very rapidly. Mm. And so the law has to adapt to the fast, the greater pace of change. It also has to adapt, I think, to the fact that change is more profound. It, you know, it, it, the, the fact you have a smartphone in your pocket has huge ramifications. Mm. Apart from instantaneous communication, we've talked about what mm. people say to each other, what people can post, the very difficult, the very difficult problems you have um, with balancing um, a sort of private life and a pub, uh, 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 and maintaining the security of the state or stopping big corporations getting at data. And then how is the courts and the legal profession, we have to change. And how in the process also you have to make certain that the ru- rule of law is respected mm. and that um, the, the cartels or uh, large mar- uh, market companies of the, of the current era uh, are constrained and legal regimes built up to protect you. And say so we are living through, in huge numbers of respects, a massive revolution. It's very difficult to see it 
in mm. detail. And it, but the law needs to adapt fast to cope. Mm. And that, the various different aspects of that, from law schools right through. I mean, one of the things after my retirement I was doing in Wales, we was asked by the Welsh government with some others to look at the way the justice system operated in Wales. And one of the interests we had was now that the business of law is changing, how do you make certain law schools change to accommodate mm. the change in the business of the law? Mm. And so there's, it's, it has, I think, a much more um, dramatic effect than the previous industrial revolutions we've had. There was time then. Mm. Um, I'm not sure there's as much time today. Yeah, I was reading a statistic or, or maybe watching it on YouTube <laughs> where someone was saying to adopt the television took X number of years and then comparing it to the latest app where it had gotten to the same number of millions of users within like two months or less. You know, it was, it was that quick, wasn't it? And we're recording this in Canterbury Law School, where I went to law school, so it's really great to be here. Um, and a shout out to them for making this happen. Um, but just thinking through law schools of the future, what sort of things do you think they need to be teaching students and giving people the right skills? I think an understanding of how you adapt, how the law has in fact adapted, mm -hmm. how you analyze what needs to be changed, how you change it, how you think through um, adapting students so that they can, they can work in an environment that's very different. Mm. I mean, <clears throat> one of the things I think you see is that lawyers sometimes don't have enough understanding of science. Certainly scientists mm. think that we ought to be have a better scientific or statistical understanding. I think it is quite important to for um, those who go to law school these days to become familiar with working in a digital environment. That's not to say they should do law and computing or learn to become computer programmers. It's a complete waste of time, in my view, though some would disagree. Mm but being comfortable of working with people um, so that when they go to practice, they're used to rapid change, they're used to seeing the way in which, dig in which digital change is affecting their future mm. and will be comfortable at a rapid pace of change, which I will say, thank goodness I never had to deal with when mm. I was a youngster. They will have a much more difficult time than mm. we. Mm. I think you're right. And I think as well, when I look back at law school, of course, I memorized many cases and wrote many essays and things. But some of the soft skills weren't necessarily core subjects in university education. But when I reflect on my own career, it's definitely the um, interpersonal relationship. Mm -hmm. Those are skills which are quite important as well. Yeah, but I think also, I mean, if you look at the way that the digital economy has been built, mm. uh, and if you chat to sort of Google or, or the like, they have built their entire market dominance on much of existing law, and in particular on contract law. Mm. And so, you know, being taught by Professor Todd that the principles of contract law is absolutely indispensable. Mm. But what I think you have to learn from that is that you now need to realize that those principles are going to be, have to be adapted rapidly to a different environment. Mm. And it's teaching the new environment and teaching people to be used to change. When I 
started as a commercial lawyer. I don't think bills of lading had really changed much in hundreds of years. Mm. And letters of credit were very prevalent. New forms of financial transaction were fairly rare. But of course, now with um, blockchains, uh, ICOs, initial coin offerings, all of this happens very rapidly. Mm. And it's learning to adapt to this huge change uh, that I think is, a, is, a, is an interesting dimension for a law school. Mm. But, tr- but sticking to the tools of one's trade, you must learn black letter law, but you've got to learn more. Mm. And I guess that's the challenge, isn't it, to, to be aware of what's changing. And particularly, for example, blockchain. You know, a couple of years ago, I'd never heard that term. I don't think anybody talked about it. But these days, it's very, you know, it's risen in importance. And you do look at contracts over blockchain where there maybe isn't a governing law. There's some system coding built into the contract between two parties across borders. Um, what does that actually mean for legal systems, right? Yeah. And I think it does require you to have a much more transnational approach right. to understand the developments that are occurring mm. and to realize that, you know, um, it is that a particular state's law may not be as important as it once was. There is no, for example, on our, with, the, with distributed ledger technology, mm. the asset isn't it's difficult to say where the asset is Mm. Um, and i think you therefore have to look to a a much more international solution to many of these problems Mm. and b have a much clear understanding of how you can fashion old concepts to deal with the changes that are occurring Mm. That's great. Well, after this, we're going to be having a session here at Canterbury University, so I'll listen with interest. Um, in terms of um, what you're doing now and becoming a lord, uh, what was that like for you? Down to 2005 and the constitutional changes that occurred, mm-hmm. if you were a judge and um, a lord, uh, you could sit in parliament and you could um, sit in court. Uh, that's now no longer with one or two very special exceptions possible. Right. And so although I was made a peer when I became Lord Chief Justice, um, I was immediately, I was taken in, sworn into the chamber. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't allowed to go back there and say anything until I'd retired. All right. And so (laughs) now I do sit in the upper house. Mm -hmm. It's an odd time to be there because the whole of the political debate in the UK is dominated by Brexit. Mm Mm-hmm. But um, I think what I feel is quite useful in that that, uh, the House of Lords generally deals with the much more technical aspects of legislation Mm. and inquiries into things. Um, And I will do what is essentially some legal work. One of the things I did last year was to chair a committee um, that was examining a private bill that is... um, can before the your, the UK Parliament. I don't know whether it's true here. You can t- you can bring a private bill to allow you to do things, and it has the same force as a public act of Parliament. And it was very common in the course of our history that this 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 um, was a way of doing things. Mm-hmm. And we were dealing with the with the with the um, consequences of some earlier 
uh, 17th, 18th, and 19th century legislation on rights of on on the drainage of the fens, hmm. and they wanted to alter the legislation so that uh, they could charge people for sailing on the on, on these waterways. Which, oh. of course, when all the acts were passed years and years, you know, centuries ago, this was not something in their imagination. But why it was interesting is that it was a effectively a, a contest between those who were responsible for and the interests behind the drainage and those who had interests in rights of navigation or living on, on, on boats on these waterways. And you had a sort of corporation on the one side against private individuals who were making their case. Mm. So it was exactly like going back to court and having litigants in person or self-represented litigants on one side and a corporation on the other. So there are the judicial skills that are sometimes required. Mm. And then there are the technical skills when you're dealing with um, sort of bits of technical legislation or trying to explain that. Mm. Uh, but I always take the view that I, I have been a judge for a very long time Mm. And um, to most people, I will always be seen as a judge and therefore take the view that essentially one, my principal function is not uh, to get embroiled in things that are of acute political controversy mm. because it's so important in the wider picture to make certain the judiciary is not seen as having any political stance one way or the other. Mm. And so that... That's what I think differentiates someone who's been a judge and has made a peer from someone who's been a politician or a scientist and made a peer. Uh, um, you have this long part of you is always seen as the judge and you can't compromise. You have to obviously get involved in things that are not party political, but I try and stay out of party politics completely. Mm. I guess it's a mantle that you've had for a number of years now, so being a judge would just continue on in whatever you do. Theoretically, one, I'm free of it, but in practice and in reality, mm. you're not. Mm. So um, we're recording this here in New Zealand, and as, as we're speaking, probably there's lots of discussions happening about Brexit. Is there any comment that you wanted to make, or <laughs> are we going to... The answer to the last question answers the this answer one, right? The answer to the last question <laughs> answers that one. No, uh, I was involved yeah. in the first round of, of, of the um, bits of litigation mm -hmm. and was described as an enemy of the people. Uh, for the judgment we gave. Um, and from that moment onwards, I've been acutely conscious of the need to ensure mm -hmm. the judiciary stays out of politics, mm. uh, which is not easy. Yeah, no, fair enough. And you mentioned the, the peers. How many peers are there? Um, roughly 800. The chamber gr has grown. Uh, well, so I say, when I say peers, they're more than that, mm -hmm. but it's 800 who have a right to sit in the House of Lords. Okay. It's the second biggest legislative chamber in the world, mm. exceeded only by the uh, um, People's Republic of China. Hmm. Um, and it's too big, and there, is, there are very strong feelings it ought to be reduced to about 600, right. but it's not easy to do that. Yeah. And for the people, because I'm curious always to give people insight into things that they wouldn't experience, what's it like to go into the House of Lords and actually sit and be part of that? As everyone told me, um, and I think I would also tell everyone else, when you get up to make your maiden speech, mm -hmm. 
Um, there are a lot of people there who are looking at you. Will you do a good job or a bad job? Therefore, it's, it's like going back to school again. You are right. starting as a junior and mm. you have to make your own impression. And so it is, it, it's, it's sort of back to, to, in a sense, and I think you have to treat it as this, it's back to square one because mm. the dynamics are different. Um, and so it's very, it's very, it's, it's in, I find it interesting. Um, I haven't sat, uh, gone as much as I would intend to do over the next couple of years because I've had this job to do in Wales. Mm-hmm. But that apart, I think as long as you realise you're, you're in an environment that is new and different and you have to learn the ropes. Mm. One illustration that, that may be familiar to any parent is that um, the House of Lords has a cloakroom. And one of the very important things you do when you start is to require your own peg on which to hang things. I see. So it is going back to school yes. in a very elemental way in that respect. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. It's, uh, I love to get these insights into the practicality of, of what life is like. Can I just ask a question? Uh, among all the people that you've met in terms of in the House of Lords and the politicians and things, to what extent has someone really impressed you with their genuineness and the heart and the care that they have for the community beyond the titles or anything else? Um, yeah, is there anybody that has really stood out? Yeah, I think there are a number who have stood out in mm. different respects. Um, I think the politician who is prepared to stand on his principle and resign is very, very important. Mm-hmm. The person who has had an outstanding career in something completely different, say a great scientist, and is prepared now to try and come and contribute that knowledge. It's those who, I think, mm-hmm. who are prepared to put the interests of the state before their self-interest mm-hmm. are those that impress me the most. Mm. That's good. Well, thank you so much for your time. I'm really looking forward to the lecture this evening, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your trip around New Zealand. And um, we'll have to have you back again sometime to do a bit more sightseeing and, and see the beauty here, because I think there's a lot that resonates back to Wales as well, the natural beauty. Yes, indeed. And can I thank you very much for this opportunity to talk to you. And I hope what I've said is of some interest. Yeah, thank you. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Lord Thomas. I know for me, there were many things that stood out. And I found it was fascinating to get an insight into worlds that I haven't had direct experience of, including the House of Lords. If you enjoyed this, then consider checking out some of the earlier episodes in the back catalog. And there's a lot more information at theseeds.nz. Until next time. (music) 